Welcome to Expert Gold Radio, which shows you how to leverage your leadership. Here's your host, Gahan Pereira, for this month's show. Welcome to Expert Gold Radio for January 2015. Happy New Year to you. Hope you've had a relaxing break over Christmas. Here in Australia, much of the business community shuts down for December and January, but I'm here with Expert Gold Radio, and I'm recording this in early January. And I want to start with a little good news, and this is really good news about the world. See, I hear a lot of people talking about how the world is such a bad and difficult and conflict-ridden and worse-off place than ever before. And it's true that we haven't solved every problem, but we're really so much better off than ever before. It's just that some people love talking talking about all the bad stuff. And I was inspired by Hans Rosling's latest TED Talk, where he talks about the Ignorance Project, which he runs to help educate people about exactly this topic. And so I did some research and I came across Dr. Max Rosa's work at the website called theworldindata.org, which shows some of the major trends in the world. So let me share with you some of Max Rosa's findings about our world now. Poverty in the world has drastically reduced, with only 20% of the world now living in poverty. Now, of course, 20% is still too much, but it's a big improvement compared with, say, 50% in 1980. In the poorer developing world, rates of undernourishment have plunged. Uh, Child mortality has been steadily declining, and its fastest decline is in the developing world, which is good, especially in Africa. Malaria and AIDS are killing far fewer people than just 10 years ago. Natural disasters make big news, but they kill far fewer people now because we're better able to cope with them. And people are becoming more educated. Now, of course, we still have a long way to go, but it's worth acknowledging and applauding the progress that we've made so far. Okay, so let's move on to the first feature interview for the year. And I'm thrilled to bring you Jeff McDonald. He's the ideas architect, the book wrapper, and a really smart thinker. And in this conversation, we talk about thinking, learning, leading, and creating compelling visions for the future. These are all great topics for leaders looking ahead to 2015. Hello, this is Gihan Pereira. I'm speaking today with Jeff McDonald, who's one of the smartest people I know. And Jeff has a varied background. He's a, he calls himself the ideas architect because he was an architect or he isn't a qualified architect, but now he architects ideas. He builds ideas, but it's not just about ideas. It's also about innovation and uh, content marketing and really building a business that's clever and innovative. So I really want to talk to Jeff today about you know, just about smart thinking, because I think nowadays there's a greater need than ever before to to be smart, to get smart, and to have great ideas, and to be able to commercialize them and put them into practice. So Jeff is one of the people who does that better than anybody else I know. So welcome, Jeff. Oh, hi, Gihan. Thanks. Pleased to be on the show. Yeah, great, great. And with such a big, such a big intro, uh, I'm sure that you'll live up to that as well. <laughs> So I know one of the things you do, Jeff, which I want to talk about a little bit later, is a book wrapper. But uh, tell me, because you're a prolific reader, what are you reading at the moment that's really interesting? Um, The book that I was just talking to you in the pre-show was called Give and Take by Adam Grant. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting because he's talking about um, givers, takers and matches. And matches are people that do tit for tat. So I give you this, I give you that. And it's Mm -hmm. really an interesting book around what is your reciprocity style? So how do you reciprocate and work with people that way? And mm-hmm. um, he actually points out that the potentially over a long period of time, the givers have an advantage over the takers and the matches, which I found interesting. But the really interesting piece was if the givers get it wrong, they can actually be the least successful. 
So very interesting book. Oh, so you're saying that the givers, like intuitively, it does make sense to me that the matches are the people who you'd think would be the ones who'd have the most success. But you're saying the givers do, which I kind of get, and the title of the book kind of gives it away. But you're saying they could also have the worst results. Yeah, so apparently um, the givers, if they become a doormat and just give yeah. all the time without considering their own interests, will actually lose over time because they'll get walked on. Whereas they c- can be very generous in giving but in the same way, if they keep it within a context of, yes, I need to manage my self-interest or I need to put some boundaries around it so the takers don't just take, then long-term, the givers will win. And yeah. he talks about it across negotiation, sales, networking, and some of these classic things that we'd think are takers' domains. Yeah, and I'm really fascinated by that, Jeff, because my obsession, as you know, is about this whole concept of I matter, which is about the power of the individual. And I really love the idea that there are smart, talented, creative individuals out there with great ideas and they want to share them, which is a lot about giving, but maybe they need some rules and some guidelines to make sure that they don't always get taken advantage of. Yeah, and I think that um, almost sums up my career, if you like, because I started out, yes, I started out as an architect, but after that I started to get asked to lunch from a lot of people and people would want to pick my brain and I thought that was fantastic at the time because free lunch was a free lunch, right? (laughs) And all I had to do was talk and people would listen. I thought, oh, this is pretty good. But I never realized that that was really what my business was about. And that could have been my business way back then. So that's going back a few years now. And then over the time, it's been about how do I actually package up situations so that I can have that same situation occur, but also earn money some of the time from that. So sometimes I'll still do that, but mostly the person needs to pay or there needs to be some benefit back to me or something like that. So it's not as – so probably I'm a good example of the book in some ways where I'll put some boundaries around that. I'm happy to share ideas and talk and that sort of stuff, and sometimes I put boundaries around it, so I do make a living from my ideas now. And I remember somebody saying to me once that that whole idea of the free lunch is actually bad for both parties. So it's bad for the for you because you're giving away your ideas just in exchange for a twenty, thirty, fifty, hundred dollar lunch. But it's bad for the other person as well because they're not really making a commitment. They just sit there, they pay a little bit of money for the lunch, but they take the idea away and they haven't really made a real investment in putting that idea into practice. Oh, absolutely. And that's pretty much why I say no to ninety nine percent of them now. Because what I found was I would give my heart and soul and I'd have a good lunch, but really what I wanted was that person to do something with the idea. And so if all we did was talk and then I'd come back a month later and they'd forgotten about it or done nothing with it, that was the disappointing part for me. So that's why I totally agree. The person's got no skin in the game and often, as a result, takes no action around it. And that's the really disappointing part. Absolutely. Although, that said, I can understand why so many people want to take you out to lunch, Jeff, because uh, you are really one of the smartest thinkers that I've ever come across. And uh, I just I just love that you've got such an eclectic range of interests as well. It's not just architecture. It's all about design. It's uh, You're really into sports. I think there was a time when you used to do share market trading as well, wasn't there? So I'd, I love the fact that you are like a Leonardo da Vinci. I uh, just had, a, had a, such a wide range of interests. Yeah, I think. Um, one of the first presentations I ever did was when I was studying in, um, overseas when I was studying architecture in the US and I submitted a paper to a student conference and I was at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and they were celebrating 99 years. So if I'd been around one more year, it would have been 100 years for the School of Architecture. Mm-hmm. And I was the first student in the history of that 
school that had ever been selected to present at the National Student Conference. Mm -hmm. And the topic, interestingly, was should the architect of the future be a specialist or a generalist? And they had four presenters and three of them were talking about specialists and I was the only one advocating the position for a generalist. And it was really back then that I realised, oh, I'm obviously a generalist. I just like a whole bunch of stuff. Mm. And I think that's part of, I think partly it's how my brain must be wired that I just, I'm looking for connections all the time. So therefore I can see across a whole bunch of topics um, what the connections are and that's what makes them interesting for me. And the other one was really... When I came back from overseas, I started looking around at different jobs that I wanted to have, and it was always a case of I wanted that job so I could do that bit, I wanted that job so I could do that bit, and I wanted five different jobs. I didn't want one job. So I found it really hard to get a job because I only got to do one thing that I wanted to do. Mm. Pretty much I've been unemployable ever since. Well, I think a lot of other people are also in that situation now, Jeff, that that the whole idea of being able to have a job for life where you go into something that you might even be passionate about, but you're not going to be spending 40, 50, 60 hours a week doing stuff that you're passionate about. So people are jumping around in their careers. They're becoming independent. They're becoming freelancers. They're becoming entrepreneurial. And it's no longer the case that you say, I'm willing to settle for just a job that gives me 5% of the time I can do what I'm passionate about. The other 90% 95% of the time, it's just me earning a wage. And I think that's closer to reality. So even if I talk to you, you've actually, you're interested in a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and it might be narrower or it might even be wider than mine. But I think if you look at a full human being, that we're actually interested in a lot of different stuff. There's not many people that are only interested in one thing only. Um, and I think the way the job market is very much this whole I don't know, I think it's this shift. If you want to go big picture, which I tend to do automatically, is it's almost the industrial age where basically I stood beside that machine and made sure it went clunk every five seconds, clunk, 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 and that was the job. But if you look at information, all information is connected, and it's just a matter of whether you've got some, A, some interest in the information and then ideally some um, reservoir of knowledge around it. And if you've got that, the interest and that reservoir of knowledge, then you really could be talking to people about all sorts of stuff. Yeah, and that's quite interesting that in that, like we still have a whole bunch of industrial age organizations, don't we? And it's interesting that there are people who are working in them who are kind of raging against that and struggling to make their voices heard and their ideas heard, but they're, they're caught up in this hierarchy of control where everything has to be done in the in the prescribed order and within the prescribed structure, but there are all these people who outside work can do amazing things and do amazing things, but in work, they kind of feel like they're stuck in their pigeonhole or the cubicle and they, they can only do what they're told to do. And I think that is quite, like the way I see it is quite a literal analogy of the machine so that we are literally the cog in the machine and the mm-hmm. cog needs to be specialised. Just do that one thing because then the manager can manage the machine really easily. So it's very much a um, traditional mindset around people as cogs, as workers. Whereas you step into this whole knowledge world, which we've been in for quite a long time. It's like we've been here for 20, 30, 40 years, depending on where you draw the line. Um, But you've still got people thinking in those terms. And I think it's very much exactly as you said. It's about control. And therefore, it's easy to control a specialist because you know where the boundaries are. Um, There's also a trap on it as well, because if you look at any piece of knowledge, there's a specialisation about the knowledge. 
So being a generalist around knowledge is useful in some contexts, but it's actually not useful as well. Let's say you've, um, let's pick a, a situation that will hope never happen to you, Gihan, is you've, something's happened and the police have arrested you for whatever, and you're going to go and get the best lawyer you can who's an expert in that area. Or in the same, if you are unwell, you're going to get the expert in that area where possible. You don't want a generalist, or you might want a generalist to go, hey, go see the specialist. So you want to work in tandem there. But you don't want to just be a specialist from the risky point of view of if the game changes too significantly, your whole area of expertise might be wiped out. So that's the downside of being a specialist. But there's certainly advantages as well, because that's where the big dollars are. Okay, good, because it kind of just preempted one of our questions, Chad, because when you're talking about that whole idea when you were back at uh, at architecture school talking about specialists and generalists, I was going to ask you, that was fine way back then, but is it possible now to be a generalist with so much information out there, or do you really have to specialise in some, in some area, and, and how do you choose, and what's the right balance? Yeah, it's a great question. You really got to, I, I tend to think the, the major frame when you're working as a, an expert in your own career is ultimately it's know yourself. And because I know that I'm interested in a whole bunch of things, then I need to build my career about a whole bunch of things, or at least a way to work across that. Whereas if I'm specialised and I'm totally into um, intellectual property law, or I'm totally into something very, very specific, then by all means go deep and narrow on that because you can build a career out of that. You just need to keep your head up occasionally to see whether your area of expertise has got a future or it's about to get wiped out by some disruptive technology. Mm. The trick on it is the generalist needs to still find a positioning from a marketing point of view. So, for example, if I just said I was interested in art, design, sport and trading shares, then you wouldn't know what to come to me for and I wouldn't be able to find you. It's not a very niche way of finding people. But there's also an interesting spin if you get into content marketing. If I just start talking about what I start talking about, very soon I'll either have an audience coming to me or, or I, maybe I won't, but um, if I talk about something no one's interested in. But on the internet, there's almost always someone who's interested in something you're talking about. And so I think there is a position now for people to actually just talk about what they're interested in and find an audience backward, backwards. And I know that's um, heresy to a lot of marketing people, but I think there's that opportunity as well. So I'm still very much a generalist, and the way I position myself is generally around my design or my design thinking skills, because that way I can go into a situation and a wide range of situations and simply think and design and come up with something that's of value to people. So it still comes down to you've got to have a specific value proposition that you provide for people. It just may be generalist as in in my case i would say it's i'm actually an expert in a process versus i'm not necessarily an expert in a particular subject so it's the what versus the how i'm very much a how person and that's why i pretty much got out of architecture for a short story on that basically architects designed the what they designed the finished building whereas i was always asking how do we build this thing you know how does it work when it's built and that didn't make sense in the architect's world because they're in the what frame, whereas I'm very much a how person. And I think a how person or a process person may be more generalist than a what person who may be more specific. Well, I think it's a really interesting perspective that you've got there, Jeff, because there are a whole bunch of what people out there in the world who need how support. So they need somebody who can be the process specialist to assist them in getting their what out into the world. And I 
I agree with you. I think that we've been in the knowledge age for a while, but it's only recently that we've been really in the connection age where not only do you have knowledge and be an expert in it, but you can share that knowledge and you can share that easily with far fewer barriers than ever before. But just because you've got so many options, uh, in fact, having so many options can actually be a disadvantage, can't it? Because you've got so many things to choose from that you just don't choose any of them. And if you have a process specialist to assist you in that, somebody who is actually independent of the what area but can assist you in the how, that's a perfect combination. Yeah, and I think that's really the game now that I really think it's like if we all just stood up and said, hey, I'm really good at that, then it just comes down to partnering with the other people that complete the picture. So I don't have to be the expert across everything as long as I can partner up with people who cover for other areas that I'm not so good in or not that interested in. Yeah, and it's interesting, like that whole partnership thing is so you. It's so you, Jeff, like you've been talking about, for like you've been the book wrapper. And I actually do want to talk about that, where you actually work with many of the leading authors around the world to make their books more accessible. And uh, you've been running a podcast for a while where you interview great guests. And it's it's a combination of your expertise and theirs. So let's start with book wrapper. So for people who don't know, uh, tell me what Book Wrapper is and how it came about. So it actually came about from um, doing the Thought Leaders Million Dollar Expert Program. And so my thrown way or my usual way of looking at the world is I go big picture. Um, so I'm looking at industrial age versus information age trends. That's, you know, I, I automatically go there. And so what I needed around my business was to chunk it down to, you know, the low-hanging fruit idea. And at the time, I've always been reading books. I think I've read roughly 30, 40, 50 books a year for the last 15 years. I'm just interested in books. Um, that's where partly as an introvert, I like to retreat, um, find a good book, and then that stimulates my thinking, and then I'm ready to take the world on again. So books are in my blood that way, and I realise a lot of people are not reading books, and I'm, I understand their choice around that as well. So Book Wrapper came back to I was already reading books. I was already taking my notes. And I might as well just package them up to put them out there. And originally the conception was I'll do this as my newsletter. And then once I started to package it up, I realised that uh, there's actually an opportunity for people to pay for this because this was useful. And the value proposition was pretty much, I didn't actually summarise the books, I actually rewrote them. And the difference is that you can, basically summaries are like just less words, whereas I would actually take the book and redesign it. And in some cases, a couple of the authors came back and said, oh, I sort of thought the material was familiar, but I didn't recognise my book there. Mm. And others came back and said, oh, I just love what you've, that you've captured the essence of it. So in some cases, I've been very consistent to the book, and in some cases, I thought I'd added something different or at least re reinterpreted it. So it was very much about that. And then it was just a matter of coming up with um, a business model around that and... It mostly worked but didn't work. I never really got it to the point where I earned all my money from Book Wrapper. Um, I always had it earn some of my money, but unfortunately that meant sometimes I got distracted and had to go other places to get the money. So I think the key to Book Wrapper was it was very much the way I see it. I was very much experimenting. So here's a way to get paid to read books was the first thought. And the second was how do I actually package that up? And it's certainly been very useful. Um, it's been downloaded. I've lost count. I, I actually can't count anymore. The numbers off the server, the, off my web server, were about 75,000 downloads. But I also had syndicates who were paying to distribute it to their audience, 
Plus there were other copies that were distributed randomly. So I think I could safely say it's been downloaded over 100,000 times. And it's kind of funny because people still come up to me and say, hey, you're the book wrapper guy, aren't you? And it's like, really? Yeah, I am. And it's kind of weird when someone comes up and they know who you are and you've got no idea who they are. So book wrapper's been interesting. Plus it's been the other one of now it's about rewriting books from book wrapper because I've got over 500 pages of really powerful ideas from some of the best thinkers on the planet. And it's time for me to actually just rework them into some of my own books at the moment. Yeah, fantastic. And I think there's a couple of real benefits in the whole book wrapper model that you've created, Jeff, which, I mean, living despite the fact that you say it was a flawed model or perhaps it didn't work as successfully as you'd like, I think a couple of really interesting things that you're doing is one is that, and you use the word essence, I think that's what you've done. You've captured the essence of a book. And there always seems to be the, in the publishing world, the idea that if you write a book, it has to be 200, 250, 500 pages long for it to be considered a, a worthy of reading. And what you've done is you said, no, it doesn't have to be. Let's make this four or five or eight page um, visual book summary uh, of the book. And I, I know you don't have the word summary, but it's a, you captured the essence of the book and you captured the ideas and said, look, for some people, for many people, this is actually going to be more valuable than you reading the whole book in detail because you actually do get to get through it all. Yeah, one of the really interesting pieces of feedback, and I think for me, Book Wrapper was very much an example of I didn't know that I did that well. Mm-hmm. I just did it. And it was only when I started putting out there, people said, oh, wow, you're really good at that. And I'm like, oh, really? I'm good at that. So it was really, I really encourage people to just put out experiments like that to see what happens. Um, the other part of it was the feedback I got was people, some people wanted to read the Book Wrapper rap, which I designed so you could read in about 30 minutes. And some people only wanted to read that. And some people wanted to read the 30 minutes to find out where they should buy the book. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, didn't see that coming. But then the third group was really interesting. They said, oh, can't you do anything quicker than 30 minutes? I don't want to spend 30 minutes getting the idea. And what that prompted for me was, A, I came up with a five-minute version just using some tweets and made summaries of books based on tweets that I compiled into slideshow. So I did come up with a five-minute version. But what it really pointed to me was a lot of people are not reading books right now. And if you think about a basic business book, 250 pages, then you've got probably somewhere between four to six to eight hours to read a book. And people are just not willing to spend that time on the book. So as an author or a content creator, if you're only creating books, you're actually chopping out probably 90% of your audience in terms of getting your idea or your message. And therefore, I think we need to be designing our message in different timeframes. So I looked at it as the author has created this six-hour book. I've created a 30-minute version, but there's also room for a five-minute version or a 10-minute version or other versions of different timeframes. And if you think about it, now we've got um, Vine on Twitter is six seconds and you've got 140 characters on Twitter. You've got your typical status updates that might be a sentence or two. You've got... Blog posts that might be 300 to 700 words that take about five minutes to read. So there is this layering of information. I've actually got feedback from people around my newsletter about what type of content they want and how much length they want to take for that content. And I think it's what's happened is content's fragmented so that basically you can get it almost any, you want to almost be presenting your idea in different formats. So to read it, to listen to it, and to do a video of it, and that's where Book Wrapper went as well. But it was also about 
doing it in different time frames. So ideally, if you've got one idea, you want to have the three formats of audio, reading, and, and watching. You also want to have a, a one-minute, a five-minute, uh, maybe a 15-minute, 30 minutes, and a couple of hours. And then you can lead on to, well, here's the two-day program and so forth, or here's work with me or something like that. So your idea really does need to be layered in lots of different ways because people very much like the theory of the long tail want to adopt it in different forms now. Probably a long answer, but that was a, that's a really important idea for people that are content creators. Yeah, and as you're saying that, Jeff, it just struck me that what you've said, it sounded like the, um, we've been positioning it as uh, when you want to create content for the outside world and when you want to create content yourself that goes public. But it seems to me also that that applies equally to people who've got great ideas within organizations or they've got a message they want to share. You've got to create it at those different levels, whether you're a leader where you kind of automatically get people in the same room and then you've got to get their attention and interest to keep them there, or whether you're somebody who wants an idea to spread and you don't necessarily have the power to spread it, but if you can provide it in the, the little soundbite version as well as the more detailed version, then it's got more chance of getting through uh, to everybody who needs to, to needs to champion it. Yeah, and I think that's crucial around, like if you think about it, I don't think I've, I've invented anything here. I've just spotted a pattern. And it very much is that, you know, we hear the sound bites in the media and that's very much about getting our attention. So you need to be able to write a good headline just to get people to tune into what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Then ideally you want to draw them into the idea. And in some cases, some people will go all the way with you and might finish up working with you and it might be that they... You know, they could work with you in a one-hour webinar or it might be a one-day workshop or it could be a, a one-week program or they might be a coaching client for 10 years. So there's all sorts of depths that people want to go to. And I think that's part of putting our offers out there, that they need to be varied offers that appeal to people at different levels. Yeah, and I think that uh, what we've been talking about sounds like a lot, of, lot about marketing. But interestingly, like having been listening and reading and watching your ideas for a long time, Jeff, it seems to me that this is very much about leadership, isn't it, as much as it is about marketing? I think you're, you're right on both counts. I think it's very much about if you want your idea to communicate to someone else, then you're going to have to pitch it in a couple of different forms. Um, and if we go back to basic um, learning styles, someone likes the visual, someone likes the auditory, someone likes the, the kinesthetic around it, and it's just respecting that our audiences want our ideas or they want messages or they want communications in different formats. And if you can pitch your idea in multiple formats, there's more chance that you'll pitch it to more people and also the one person can then have a richer experience around it also. So it's very much about, I think, when you have ideas, you ultimately are instantly trying to lead. Um, so I think the connection between ideas and leadership is, is very important there because my version, a simple version of a leader is someone hey, who says, I want this to happen. Mm. And to some extent, that's instantly an idea. And then it's about how do you get people on board to help you with that? And that's where the communication of your idea is crucial. And therefore, you're stepping into marketing to recruit people to your idea. And that may be a, a leader in an organization, or it might be a marketer selling a product on the street. 
So possibly 10 or 15 years ago, Jeff, if you're a leader and you said, I want this to happen, you basically tell people how to do it and they'll <laughs> follow you and they'll make it happen. But now you just haven't got the luxury anymore of being able to just tell people how to do stuff. Uh, you're competing with not just the people within your own organization and other departments, but you're competing with social media and YouTube and people on Snapchat and those that's the that's the way that people get attention nowadays. And just because you say, I want this to happen, doesn't mean that there's any guarantee that it's going to happen. Oh, absolutely. And that brings me to one of my favourite books, um, which is by Barbara Kellerman, and it's called The End of Leadership. And basically, she's a leadership expert, and she's pointing to that um, all those things that we thought leadership was about and was based on actually don't make sense anymore. And she points to it that... The history of leadership started out as almost the, the Greek gods, that we saw leaders as gods or this mythical person that was up there. And she points to some interesting ones, particularly in the U.S., where she says um, most of the people in the U.S. didn't know Franklin Roosevelt was in a wheelchair and had, was suffering from polio. And the story goes that his wife ran the country for most of the time that he was president. Mm. Similarly, when you move to um, President Kennedy, um, they didn't actually know he was a womanizer and he had all these affairs with other people whilst he was in the president's office. And if you bring it to now, like Obama or any politician, if you like, can't say, can't even breathe without someone picking up what he said. And what she's pointing to is this notion that we used to see this leader as this perfect person. And now that we're seeing the leader as a non-perfect person, the whole position that they represent is undermined as well as that person's influence. So now we used to think the president of the US or the prime minister of Australia was this perfect, infallible person. And now, as reflected in our politicians' polls, they're the lowest polls ever, and that's because we've seen Tony Abbott and his budgie smugglers. You know, And that's not a good look for the PM, but in the same way, that's just who he is. So we can't hide that stuff anymore, but it does have this impact on the prestige about being a leader. And then if you step into the social media space, you can't tell people what to do in social media because they'll just click off your page and go to someone else's. So this whole notion of how we lead has to change. And my version of it is that it has to change through ideas. We have to lead people to say, hey, here's what I want to have happen. Hey, do you want to join me or not? And that's what leadership is today. It's not about position or authority anymore. The younger generations are definitely, that's in their values. So the baby boomers, as the generic tag is, they actually admired or respected authority, whereas the younger generations, the millennials on that, authority is almost a red rag to the bull to go in the opposite direction. Yeah, and I've often said that it used to be that you used to have authority, but now you need to be an authority, and that's that's the distinction. But let's let's look into that a little bit deeper, Jeff, because you've described a, a problem, or you shed some light on a problem, which I, I'm sure that many leaders are, would, would have, and they're frustrated by the fact that they say, I want this to happen, and it doesn't happen anymore the way that it used to. And they, of course, would blame the millennials and the Gen Ys, and they'll say, oh, those Gen Ys, they've just got no attention, they've just got no loyalty. And yet, I think what you're saying is that there has been a cultural shift throughout society. So what do you do about that now that we know that, that, that the landscape has changed? Well, I think you just need to be a better communicator, to be honest, because at the end of the day, that's what it's about. It's about communicating your ideas such that people are enthused, engaged, inspired to take the action that you want. And that's really the sign of a good leader. Because if I was um, your boss and had a gun at your head, well, you're pretty much going to, I don't have to be a very good leader at that point. You're pretty mm -hmm. much going to do what, you have, what I say I'm going to, I want you to do. But if there's 
if we presume the context is social media or a website and I can click on to, as soon as I don't like what you're doing, I can click away, then you need to take a different approach there. And this again comes back to um, how are you going to relate with that person? How are you going to engage them? How are you going to treat them as an individual? How are you going to satisfy something for their needs as well? It's not just about you being the leader and getting what you want. It's about how do I give and take here? How do we all win here? And so there's some very different frames of reference there around what it takes to be a leader. In fact, I saw some research that the Harvard Business Review published recently, Jeff, which I'm sure you'd have come across. It's called The Best Workplace on Earth, and they had identified these six factors, which, uh, and I compared that with what the Gallup organization found you know, 20 years ago. And in the old days, it was like what employees would look for with things like good benefits and career prospects and things like health benefits and super, whereas now they're looking for Things like give me a place that I, f- I feel proud to work at. Give me some meaningful work. Don't don't create stupid rules that get in the way of me doing work. And it is very much about that, isn't it? People want work to be to have meaning, not just to be about the money. Yeah, and I think that partly comes down to choice now. So if you thought about like certainly my dad's generation, then basically you went and got a job and you just earned the money to pay for the family, and there wasn't even this notion of career planning. Whereas I think people have got so many choices now and the job market's so much more flexible and mobile these days than people can pick and choose and just say, hey, I'm only going to stay here three months, I'm leaving because it's not suiting me. And so whereas previously you might have stayed there for three years because you thought it was good for your career, it'll look good on your CV, but as soon as you get that flexibility to move, it forces the standard up because if you don't engage your staff and give them meaningful work, then they will leave. And that's where staff turnover becomes a massive issue for some organisations because they're not providing meaningful work. And then you go into the whole war for talent idea that if you want to attract the best people, then you seriously need to have the best place to work. Mm, Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right. And you said earlier, Jeff, that one of the things that you do is always jump to the big picture, which uh, I think is fantastic because I'm also a big picture thinker. And one of the really big picture ideas you've got is about manifestos. And I remember a few years ago when you first started talking obsessively about manifestos, it seemed. Um, I love the idea. Uh, so tell me about manifestos and where they fit, particularly for, particularly as a leadership idea and maybe even as a business idea. Well, it was very much in picking up what we'd been um, just talking about with this, how do you lead someone? <laughs> and my bias is that um, I have a preference over ideas and concepts and that that's what turns me on. And Naturally, I went to, well, how do you lead with an idea? And I remember reading the actual spark for the word came from Seth Godin's Permission Marketing book. And there's a one line, three paragraph or three word paragraph that basically says, all ideas start with a manifesto. And I started to think about that. And that's where I started to go, okay, what's this manifesto? And if you think about it, the basic idea is very similar to vision and mission statements except there was a fundamental problem with vision and mission statements. And usually it was because of the way the leaders of the organisation went and created them, that they'd go and have a holiday or a weekend away and they'd come back on Monday morning and get all the staff together and they'd go, ta-da, we've come up with your vision for the future. (laughs) And it's like, well, of course they weren't engaged. So first of all, the, the process was flawed, but... There was also another step on it. And where I think organisations are going right now, and I think this is a critical distinction around most people's business, is 
that previously, and I use the architectural metaphor that the organisation was like a castle where basically we had big walls, we had a moat around it and we had a drawbridge and we were inside and we pretty much kept everybody outside except we'd shoot a few arrows or we'd do whatever we do around our marketing. But the organisation was basically a closed entity. Whereas if you look at things today, um, particularly if you look at um, Facebook, and Facebook's a really interesting example because they provide a platform for us to put our content on their website, but then it's all up to us. And a few times now, Facebook have come out with some real changes and the audience that's now over a billion people, which is staggering mm-hmm. story in itself, but the audience has come back and said, no, 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 we don't want those. You better change the rules back or change it in some other direction. And so you get this very different situation that it's not about the organisation dictating to their customers or even their suppliers anymore. Even you could look at Australian supermarkets, that monopoly or duopoly is not going to last for too much longer because people are getting sick of it and going other places. But the other part of the analogy, so if we go from castle, we actually then finish up with what I think the metaphor is around a glass house or a greenhouse. And basically everything starts to become transparent. And I think this is the, the lesson of WikiLeaks, that basically if one person knows something, You might as well presume everybody knows it because they will soon enough. And so that we start to get to this very flat organisation where we need to treat our customers with respect because otherwise they're going somewhere else. Even down to some of these crowdsourcing things where our customers and us is almost indivisible. And the same with the suppliers. So we've got this organisation that is as far from a castle as you can get, but it's very see-through and it's very transparent. And this is the, the key to the manifesto. You've actually got to have a manifesto that engages your staff internally as well as externally. And the great example, I think, is the the Apple one, We Are the Crazy Ones. So if you don't know that, look it up, Apple ad, We Are the Crazy Ones. And basically they have some of the world's great thinkers um, with an image, and it basically says something along the lines of, you know, we're a bit crazy, we're rebels, we're troublemakers, all the rest of it, but we're the ones that cause the change. And what I think Apple were doing was spectacular in that instance because they were positioning their products to say, our products are for people. We're a minority market. We're about 10% of the market, but we're for the people that are out there making change happen. And so not only did they tell their audience and the public who they are, but they united a community around that idea. There's also a flip on it. I reckon when Johnny Ives was going in to see Steve Jobs about the new iMac way back when the ad was current, they would have almost played the ad and said, okay, we are troublemakers, we're rebels, we're changing the world. And that would have been their frame of reference for deciding whether that iMac was good enough to go out with the Apple brand on it. And that's where the the nesting or the core essence of a manifesto comes from. It needs to be a reference point for what the work that you do but it also needs to be a public call to action for your audience. And that's when you marry the two together, you're in some special territory. So you can see it's the old vision and mission statement. At one level, yes, it is a vision mission statement, but it's got a very different aim because it's trying to include your audience in it and ultimately have them join you on your journey and then be part of your journey and vice versa, that it's a parallel path or a joint path. So that's... That's, that's why manifestos really struck me when I started to put some of those other connections around it. 
You know, I was looking for the words that may, that would distinguish between the vision and mission statement and the manifesto, and you use that phrase, Jeff, call to action. And I think that's really it, isn't it? There's like a call to action or a call to arms. A manifesto seems like something that's much more active than a mission or a vision, which, you know, even if everyone gets involved in it, it still seems to be something static to say this is what we are and who we stand for, whereas a manifesto is saying here's, here's a, the, the vision statement or that's going to lead us. It's going to take us into action. Yeah, I'm a big believer in words. You really need to look at the words we use. And if you're going to point to something as being different, then you really need to use a different word. You can't just go, oh, we're doing vision statements 2.0, which was the trend for a while. Mm. You really need to come up with a different concept and link it back and say, hey, here's why this is limited or doesn't go far enough or doesn't suit anymore, and here's why we need this word. And the manifesto word is a very loaded word because it's only been writing about in the last couple of weeks that I've realised that what I'm doing is I'm not inventing manifestos. They've been around in political circles and social circles and all that for a long, long time. All I'm doing is bringing them across to a corporate context that says we need to actually unite us as the organisation with our audience. Plus, the benefit is they're actually based on the idea of creating a new context. And that's how innovation occurs that's how change happens. That's how performance happens. And so it's part of drawing a line in the sand to say, hey, we're not that anymore. We're now operating like this. Let's start to call ourselves to account in a new way and at a new level. So it's got a few layers behind it, but it's something I've come back to recently. Um, I felt that I did do some good work around it, but I sort of just, as I usually do, got distracted <laughs> and went on to something else, whereas I've sort of come back to it because I think it is a really powerful idea. Well, I think the, the, really, the really powerful ideas, they just keep coming back and coming back and coming back, don't they? They keep biting you in the <laughs> bum if you neglect them for too long. Yeah, I think so. And I think when I started talking about no one was talking about manifestos, mm. whereas a few more people out there talking about them now, and I certainly pick up books that have got them as the first chapter and saying, here's my manifesto. So there's probably a bit more currency around the word now as well. Yeah, okay. And it's, it seems to be that it's uh, it's easy enough. Well, I shouldn't say it's easy enough, but it seems easier for an individual to create a manifesto and author to say, here's my manifesto. What do you do if you're a business leader, if you're a business owner or a business leader and you want to create a manifesto for your organization? What do you do if you don't go away in the strategic retreat? Uh, what do you do instead? I think the key is whatever you do, you need to include your team in the creation of it. So you actually need a process that includes them. Um, if it's just you, it's fairly easy because you get to say how it goes. Mm. If it's with partnership with others, you've just got to include them. The whole point of the leaders going away and leaving the team behind, that was the disconnect. Um, so whatever you do, um, include them in a process, whether it's, you know, it depends how far you want to go, but I seriously think you've got to engage them as an ongoing conversation. This is not one person declaring this. This is about the organisation declaring it. And you being, if you're the CEO, say, then you might be making the declaration on behalf of the organisation, but it's not about you telling everybody where you're going. And I'm also separating this from the point of view of strategic planning mm -hmm. so that there's definitely strategic intent where, say, the managers need to be involved and you may or may not include the rest of your team in that. But a manifesto is more about the sense of who the organisation is and the vision for the future. And I mean, that's where you do want engagement at that level of creating it. 
Well, you certainly want buy into it. And the best way to get buy in is get someone to help you make it. Okay, so who who should create one, Jeff? Are we talking about, I and mean, if you look at the extremes, at one extreme, there are these high-tech startup companies that are going to create disruptive innovation that's going to change the world. And at the other extreme, there might be you know, your local dry cleaner or your local florist. Do manifestos apply across the whole range? Um, I think if you take them at a simply branding level, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that really stands out for me is around the, the business expert. And the whole idea of how do you attract your ideal clients. And the classic example I talk about is Stephen Covey and his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Mm-hmm. Sold over 15 million copies, um, been translated into 25 languages, still sells enormous amount of copies every day. And if you think about it, and the way I'd like to present it is, his seven ideas for being highly effective, are they the... The magic ones? Did he go to God or did he find the hidden secret that said these were the seven? Um, I don't think so. I think he just did some good research and then he came up and said, hey, I think these are seven that are really useful. Let's put them out there as a book. And people adopted them as, yes, that's useful. And therefore, that was his manifesto. So from an expert positioning themselves, using your manifesto is crucial because in this case, if people are adopting Stephen Covey's ideas, then that's positioning Stephen Covey even higher and higher as an expert in that space. So it's very much about, again, back to what we were talking about before, it's about positioning your idea in the marketplace. So Stephen Covey said, ask the question inherent in that title of the book, are you a highly effective person? And if you aren't, here's seven ways that can help you be highly effective. And so as soon as you buy the book and buy into his ideas, you're effectively forwarding his manifesto for him, if you like, or being part of his manifesto. So I think the first level is um, I tend to work with a lot of um, speakers, trainers, coaches, the expert sort of space, and, and I'm advocating them to put up a manifesto as a way of presenting their expertise in what is essentially a, a one-page flyer, if you like, so that if you think of the seven habits, then you could actually just have a postcard that says, here's the seven habits, that then leads people onto a website that has a video for 10 minutes around that, that then leads them onto the half-hour webinar or reads them onto the book, and then you get that layering of idea. So the manifesto is a simple way to basically share your core philosophy um, just as a series of simple statements, and that's really where I see them fitting for experts. The other context is really about what I started to hint at was about attracting your ideal clients. And the way I think Apple have used their manifesto, and I'll go back to that example of um, we are the crazy ones. That was very much, that was basically an advertisement. It was a branding exercise, but it was also, I think, used as a decision-making tool within the organisation or a quality standard, if you like. So I certainly advocate that people do it from a brand point of view because it gives them a chance to stand up and say, this is who we are, this is what we believe in, and if you believe what we believe, come and join us. And the other part of it where this came from was I was going to some events at National Speakers, and I was really probably in a very critical mood one night, and I started listening to the presenter, and I realised that the whole point of what he was presenting was actually good content, but it was really all someone else's content. He said, oh, here's this great idea from this book and here's, this, here's what this person says and then here's what this person says. And I was sitting there going, I want to hear what he's got to say. I want his opinion. 
I want him to rant about something. I want him to get really excited. I want him to say, I actually disagree with that. I think this is what you've got to do. And I think this is where, A, you'll get cut through, but also you'll get authenticity. When people are really straight and honest and, and passionate about something, that's engaging for us. But when people are just peddling other people's opinions, there's just no engagement there. So that was one of the early ways to pick it up. And I think that's the piece. We often think of startups because they're more disruptive or they've almost got a disruptive intent from day one that they need a manifesto and a manifesto fits them. But really, hopefully, I'm I'm pointing to that I think they're about positioning for an expert to say, here's what I think. And it's about a speaker wanting to engage an audience because they're willing to be a little bit opinionated. I'm not saying righteous and all the rest of it. I'm just saying they've got to have an opinion about something. And your manifesto is your chance to say, here's what I believe. And that's why I think they're powerful for any organisation because ultimately that's what we're buying these days. All the stuff around branding has shifted from it's not about the product anymore. We're buying into the ideology or the meaning or the belief or the community of people that belong to that brand. And that's why a manifesto is a, a very useful and powerful way to capture that. And I think that Stephen Covey example is a really it's a really good one, Jeff, because as you say, he took the he took a stand and he said here are seven principles or seven habits of highly effective people and then became known worldwide for it. And some years later, he came out with a book called The Eighth Habit and no one turned around and said, oh, well, you've been a fraud all along. <laughs> they said, wow, this is amazing. The, the, the amazing, wise, insightful Stephen Covey actually has something new to say. And he was seen as a positive that there weren't seven, there were actually eight. Uh, but the fact that he took a stand allowed him to position himself to say that sometime in the future. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure he never stood up and said, here's my manifesto, Mm -hmm. and that's not really the point either. It's really just about whenever you're putting out an idea, you're effectively having a manifesto about how you want the future to be, and that's really the key point. It's very much, I guess, the, the thread of my career is around ideas, and manifestos is simply an easy way to capture the essence of your idea and ultimately position yourself in the marketplace in a unique way. I think the other thing that uh, a light bulb went on in my head, Jeff, when you were talking about manifestos, the other thing that I've just realized about manifestos is that they're useful for internal decision making. And you use that phrase. And it seems to me that we started or earlier on, we were talking about the whole idea that organizations, uh, a lot of them still default to control and hierarchy and structure. But it seems like a manifesto allows you to cut through all of that. So if you have a manifesto, then it affects everything in your organization all the way from recruitment and who you recruit. It's all about talent retention and who you keep and who wants to stay there. It's also about how ideas happen in an organization that if you if your ideas are getting blocked by people higher up in the organization, you can say, hold on, our manifesto says we're the crazy ones or whatever it is, and my idea is aligned with that, so therefore you should champion it or I've got the right to take it to whatever level I want to, as opposed to being stymied by the structure and maybe the the backward thinking of some other people in the organization. Yeah, absolutely. Um, One aspect of this is, again, that use of language. So, your manifesto might be a set of core values. And so core values have been used around business for that sort of approach and and that point of view for a long time, but I think they've got to a point where they're almost ignored and they're not built into it. Whereas if partly that word use, if we go to the word manifesto, all of a sudden puts a different edge around it. And I think that's part of the shift we need to make to bring it back to focus and put a harder edge around. If we're going to call these values our values, then we need to live the values and not just 
print them up and paste them up on the wall and walk past them every day. Yeah, fantastic. So, Jeff, I knew that when we started this conversation that the only thing I knew about it was that I didn't know much about where it would go. (laughs) (laughs) And I've been thrilled. I've just been thrilled with the conversation that we've had and uh, always had this conversation, uh, this kind of level of conversation with you whenever we speak. So I'm really, really thrilled about that. And I hope I'm one of the people that you're happy to have a lunch with and just share ideas with and just exchange ideas and just, uh, I guess, riff off each other. As as usual, our conversation has been fantastic. So just in practical terms, I know that you do a lot of work in a lot of different areas. What are the particular things that you're doing at the moment? And uh, and also, how do people get in touch with you? Firstly, um, I love talking to you, Gihan, as well, because, again, I always get something back from you. And I think there's a nice – sometimes I meet with people and they want to pick my brain, and it's all about them picking my brain, whereas I'd much, much rather have a conversation with someone. And if it's a, an even conversation, I'm learning backwards and forwards. I'm happy to do that lots. Mm-hmm. So you're definitely on that list. Um, what am I working on at the moment? At the moment, I've, I've created a bigger context around manifestos called Ideas Marketing, but and that's going to be the next book I'm writing. So the current book I'm writing is actually manifestos and um, pretty much presenting the business case of why I think businesses need them and also the two distinct methods that I've got for creating them. Um, the rest of my work is mostly around building that I'm, I'm rethinking a lot of the content marketing that i'm doing because i think there's a real problem with content saturation out there so i'm rethinking all that and my main focus is the book at the moment and partly that's knowing where i want to position myself um, so i'm doing a lot less of the little things i'm still doing the business coaching and helping people package up their ideas in that way but from my output point of view, I've focused it more into one book and one series of content, and then I'll move on to the next one. Hmm. I think one of my weaknesses is that I get excited about new ideas and I leave the current ones behind, but I'm very much focused right now on finishing the ideas that I've been creating and then moving on. So Manifestos is my focus. Hmm. Yeah, fantastic. So that's I know that you've got a number of websites, a number of URLs, Jeff. What's the, what's the easiest way and best way for people to find you? Yeah, the best one, I've pretty much bought everything under the banner of jeffmcdonald.com. So that's G-E-O-F-F and McDonald as in RonaldMcDonald.com. That's where I'm, I'm doing all my blogging and pretty much putting out the content now. Um, Book Wrapper and Ideas Marketing and The Thousand Manifestos and the other ones that I've had may or may not get more airtime, but definitely Jeff McDonald's where I'm blogging and podcasting and so forth from. Yeah, fantastic. And I would highly recommend that you follow Jeff in as many ways as possible. So subscribe to his podcast, read the blog, sign up to the newsletter, because you just get some great ideas. And I find, Jeff, that whenever I read anything of yours or watch anything or listening, uh, listen to something of yours, it always sparks some idea that I can actually take and put into practice. So thank you so much for sharing your ideas today. And thank you so much for the conversation and your the wisdom and insights that you shared. Uh, thank you, Gihan. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Didn't I tell you it would be a great conversation? I really, really enjoyed that, and I hope you got value from it as well. And I reckon if you're not already following Jeff, you're really missing out, so you really should be. He's got some great ideas and insights for leaders everywhere. So you can check out his stuff at jeffmcdonald.com. That's Jeff, G-E-O-F-F, and McDonald, M-C, not M-A-C, McDonald, jeffmcdonald.com. 
So that's it for Expert Girl Radio this month. I hope you enjoyed the show and found something valuable for your personal and professional life. And if you did get some value from it, I'd love it if you could do me a favor and give me a review and a rating in the iTunes store. That helps to promote it to other people as well. If you want me to share ideas like this live at your next conference, check out my speaking topics at gihanspeaks.com. I also run a membership site for leaders, business leaders and thought leaders to help with creating an online footprint, marketing your business, getting things done in a chaotic world and delivering more magnetic messages. You can find out more about this at egurus.info, E-G-U-R-U-S dot info. And if you want to engage with me in other ways, go to gihanperero.com. You can find my blog, newsletter, radio show, videos, and webinar series. And all of them are free, and they're all designed to help you leverage the potential of your organization, your team, and of course, yourself. I wish you all the best for a successful month. I'll be back next month with more great content. This is Gihan Pereira. Bye for now.